Straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Oh, so reluctant. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki's Collegium for Advanced Studies. Today, I've got that phenomenal philosopher. I've got that Romanian romantic. I've got the one and only Stephen Niemes. Niemes. That's, that's not his name. Nemesh? Nemesh. Ne- Hang on, let me look through my notes here. Here we, oh, here we go. Namath, Namath. I've got the NFL legendary star Joe Namath. That can't be right either. These notes are all wrong. Well, I don't know. I'm talking to someone today about the phenomenology of scripture. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's Stephen and I talking about our experience of scripture. Enjoy. So, Stephen, since we last had you on the show, you've been working on your your PhD dissertation, trying to get that finished up. And so you recently, like, successfully defended your dissertation. Like, tell us a bit about that experience. Like, what what was the defense like? Well, it was really uneventful. Um, you know, I when I saw that the process was going by very quickly, so I, I asked a couple of questions and made some comments just because I didn't want to have a five-minute dissertation defense. But let me, let me kind of tell you what the story is yeah. uh, at Fuller. So at Fuller, the way the PhD works is that I've, I complete my dissertation, I submit it, and it's sent to an external reader. So there are two professors from within the school that read it, and then one from the outside. And I don't know who the one from the outside is, but I can create a list of scholars that I recommend, and then they might pursue those scholars or they might ask somebody else. The external reader for my dissertation was uh, John Baer. So you know, you know who John Baer, the mm-hmm. Orthodox yeah, theologian. Yeah. Uh, and then the two readers from within the school were Oliver Crisp and Veli Mati Karkainen. John Baer's comments, the external reader report was very positive. Uh, and Oliver and VMK didn't really have much to add to what John Baer said. So the whole thing was going to take basically five minutes. I mean, really, it was just more of a formality because, you know, they they had to approve my submission, right? And if they thought that they didn't stand a chance of passing, then they probably wouldn't have uh, have allowed me to submit it. But you know, they, I was talking with them constantly about my dissertation and they were reading the drafts of it all the time until the point of the submission. So I submitted the dissertation. John Baer's comments were almost entirely positive. He made a point. So one of my chapters in my dissertation had to do with origin. And he said, well, it might have helped this chapter if you had referenced this particular article about Clement of Alexandria. But that was like the the closest thing to a negative comment that he made. Everything else was very positive. Nice. Um, and Oliver and VMK didn't really have much else to add. We had already been discussing about the content of the dissertation throughout the course of its writing, and they didn't seem to have any substantial objections or whatever. I wish that they did. I really wanted to be grilled and to see if I could defend the claims of my dissertation against them. But they, it seems to me from their attitudes that they thought that it was worthwhile and uh, they didn't really have anything to say or anything to question me about. So the whole dissertation defense was about 20 minutes uh, 15 of which was basically, I appreciated working with you guys. This was a great time. You know, uh, sure. what's, what's next on the plate, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they, they passed the dissertation and I, that felt very good. I was very happy that day. And I still am, I, you know, still, uh, basking in the afterglow of the uh, accomplishment, I suppose. And that was about it. It was, it was a very brief dissertation defense. You know, we did it over zoom Monday morning at 9am. There was not really much else to say about it. It was very good. And I, you know, on the off chance that John Bear is out there listening to this, uh, I'd like to thank him also for his very positive and, and um, uh, favorable comments on my dissertation. I, I was glad. I was glad to be able to complete the dissertation in a year. 
Um, and I did it in the year 2020. So, you, you know, I, while everybody's mm-hmm. uh, worried about the lockdown and this and that, I was just plugging away writing and, and typing and completing the chapters. And, you know, the, the final product, I think, is a good one. I, I do plan to publish it as a book. So that's the next project for me, although I don't really have the zeal to do that right now. I just kind of want to sit and relax for a bit. But, you know, once yeah. once I build up some energy some more, then I'll, I'll work on the manuscript a bit and I'll see if I can get it published anywhere. No, fair enough, because like, I, I think I didn't end up finishing my book like about I think it was maybe like two years after finishing the dissertation because I just needed time to like think about it, fix up these things here, or there, really expand different things and some other stuff go what on earth was I thinking? That's terrible. Get rid of that. So, so yeah, it's, yeah, it takes, take some time off. It's good. So speaking of like, yeah, like what are you going to do? Like celebrate the fact that you're now this like phenomenal doctor. <laughs> well, um, my wife and I already celebrated, I suppose. Uh, we went to, we took a sort of a, I guess you call it a staycation where we stayed in our city, but we stayed at a hotel overnight. So we stayed at a, a nice hotel that we like in downtown Phoenix last weekend. My wife and I have been doing this keto diet for a while. We've been doing it for about a month and a half. And it's been working. I've lost a significant amount of weight, somewhere between 15 to 20 pounds, and I'm feeling good. Uh, but we broke our diet. We went to this restaurant in Phoenix called Cornish Pasty. Uh, I, don't, I mean, you have you were in England or the UK for a while. Do you know what a pasty is? Yeah, I've had Cornish Pasty. Yeah, before. like a hot pocket. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so we we went to this restaurant in downtown Phoenix that we like a lot called Cornish Pasty, and I had a I had a pasty. I broke my my keto diet, and then after that we went and got ice cream too. So <laughs> we broke the diet one night to celebrate the dissertation, and we spent the night at the hotel there. And yeah, we we celebrated. I you know I got dinner earlier that week with some friends of mine also. So it was a it was a good time. I'm celebrating now, and uh, now I'm just uh, applying to jobs and hoping that something something uh, good lines up for me. Good, good. So let's get into that dissertation, though. So like part of like your dissertation like here. So the big topic is the phenomenology of scripture. So let's mm-hmm. kind of break down some of those different pieces. So let's just start with what is phenomenology? Yeah, phenomenology is a method for doing philosophy, which proceeds by way of the analysis of experience. Um, there actually there is some controversy about what phenomenology actually is. Some, you know, leading proponents of phenomenology talk about it as if it is a, a single coherent philosophical movement. Uh, others who are more critical will say that, no, actually, there is not one clear idea of what phenomenology amounts to. Phenomenology really began with Edmund Husserl at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and then the next major phenomenologists after him were figures like Max Scheler, Edith Stein, uh, Martin Heidegger, who were students of his. And then after that, you have uh, an explosion in, in French phenomenology. You have Emmanuel Levinas, uh, Jacques Derrida, Jean-Luc Marion, and others. And a lot of people will say that really from Husserl, you cannot draw a straight line to any of these other figures. Like each mm. of these later figures transform something that Husserl was doing, or they don't, they don't really sign on to the entire Husserlian project of phenomenology. Things are different for them. The critics will say that there is no such thing as phenomenology. There are just, there's Husserl's philosophy, which sort of started and died with him. And then there's Heidegger and Sartre and, and Levinas and these other figures who are really doing something different. But others are saying, no, even if they do have differences among them, there are still s- sufficient similarities that you can speak about a phenomenological tradition. Uh, that's more along the lines of where I fall. I think that there is such a thing as phenomenology. Uh, I don't think that phenomenology is limited to what Husserl was doing or what Heidegger was doing. I think uh, there is basically a definition that you can give to phenomenology, which is something like what I said earlier. You know, For example, Robert Sokolowski says that phenomenology is the study of human experience and of the way things present themselves to us in and through such experience. 
so I would put that in my own way by saying that phenomenology is a method for philosophy that proceeds by way of the analysis of experience. For phenomenology, the ultimate you know, measure or canon or whatever of your philosophical assertions is experience. Just like, for example, in sort of you know, ordinary language philosophy, you had linguistic analysis, or in mm-hmm. some you know, contemporary analytic philosophy, you have uh, intuitions and perhaps like Bayesian analysis. In phenomenology, the measure, the guide, you know, the canon of philosophy is uh, experience and and the, uh, the analysis of experience. So that's very briefly what phenomenology is about. Now, phenomenology is a method for doing philosophy. It's a way of doing philosophy, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't also have certain theoretical commitments. And these theoretical commitments, as I write in my dissertation, there are really three of them. Uh, one of them is an ontological commitment. One of them is an epistemological commitment. And then one of them is a methodological commitment. Uh, the ontological commitment of phenomenology can be expressed like this. Phenomenology asserts that consciousness is, as I say, the arena for the self-disclosure of being. Um, And we can kind of understand what this means if we compare it to Kant's philosophy. In Kant, for example, there is the distinction between the phenomenal and the noumenal. There is the thing as it appears to us, you know, according to the transcendental categories of consciousness. And then there's the thing in itself, which we do not know, we do not have access to, we cannot know what that is. Phenomenology basically says that there is no such distinction. There is no phenomenal versus noumenal. The phenomenal is the thing itself. The way things appear, the way things are experienced, that's exactly the way they are. Uh, So that, you know, Robert Sokolowski, for example, will say that appearance belongs to being. The appearances of things are exactly the ways that they are. Um, And every statement about the way a thing is, every statement about the being of a thing is ultimately going to be motivated by an appearance of that thing. Um, So if I say, for example, that my shirt is blue, that's because it appears blue. Uh, If I say that, uh, or if, for example, you say that you can, uh, you can only perceive up to three sides of a cube at one time, you know, that's a famous example that Husserl gives in a lot of his works. That statement about appearance is simultaneously a statement about what it is to be a cube. So the fact that a, a cube can only be a, a perceived uh, up to three sides at a time is a statement that it's not merely a matter of like the appearance of cubes. It's also the being of cubes, that what it is to be a cube is to be such that you can only be perceived, you know, up to three sides at a time. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that the appearance of things and the being of things, there's there's no um, uh, there's no distinction between appearance and being the way a thing appears is exactly as it is. Now that there's some finer details that you might want to, uh, um, you know, that a person might want to hear here. For example, like we can think of examples of things like illusions or false appearances, optical illusions, things like that, uh, hallucinations. Right. Right. You might say, well, look, a hallucination, right? That thing appears, but it doesn't exist. My own way of responding to this issue is to say that every appearance of a thing is reflective of its being, but you also have to take into consideration the conditions in which the appearance takes place. Um, so for example, when you sub- when you put a pencil in a half full glass of water, it appears like it it sort of like changes its direction. It, it's, it splits halfway through and it appears a little mm-hmm. thicker at the submerged end. That's in a perfectly true appearance. That is the way that the, 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 um, the pencil is, uh, or rather you should say that the pencil is such as to look that way when it's submerged in water. Right. So once you once you specify the conditions of an appearance of a thing, then you no longer have a false appearance. You have a true appearance, which is actually uh, reflective of the being of the thing in question. So if you take a pencil and you submerge it in water and it looks bent, that is, you know, or you well, more precisely, you could say this. The pencil is 
such as to look that way in those conditions. Mm-hmm. And when you take it out of the water and you just hold it up in front of you, the pencil is such as to look that way, right? Uh, you know, straight and, and so on. Uh, so every appearance, I would say, is a true appearance. I don't believe in false appearances. Uh, and I think this is actually a very philosophically significant point, although we don't, I don't think we'll have the time to get into this here. Every appearance is a true appearance once you take into consideration the conditions in which the appearance takes place. You know, the way that this particular thing is positioned relative to everything else that's in the environment, also given your, you know, sensory apparatus and the way that you think about things and so on. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the first point of phenomenology. Uh, the idea is that consciousness is the arena for the self-disclosure of being. What is discloses itself and it discloses itself within consciousness, so to speak. The second point in phenomenology is an epistemological point, And that is the idea that knowledge uh, consists in what I call judgment evidence. Now, what is judgment evidence? Evidence in phenomenology is not like, you know, the reasons that you have to think a proposition is true. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, like arguments or sensory perceptions or anything like that. Evidence in phenomenology could perhaps be translated into English by the word clarity. Okay. Uh, So when you achieve evidence, what happens basically is that you form a judgment about something, and then you experience that thing in such a way that it conforms to the judgment that you make about it. So for example, if I judge that there is somebody in the other room, all right, I, I hear something and I say, oh, there must be someone in the other room. When I go in the other room and I see someone there, then I've achieved evidence because my judgment has been confirmed by something that I experience, right? So evidence is uh, this, this fulfill, it's called uh, the fulfillment of an intention, identifying fulfillment. These are some of the technical terms that phenomenologists use. But basically you achieve evidence when you form a judgment and then the thing about which you form that judgment appears to you or, or is disclosed to you in such a way as to conform to the judgment. So when I judge, there's somebody in the other room and then I go there and I see someone in the other room, then I've achieved evidence. Now, In order for us to achieve judgment evidence, as I call it, this necessarily presupposes something else called object evidence. So all my judgments are about something, right? If if I judge, for example, that the cat is white, my judgment has an intentional object, namely the cat. Right. Yeah. And in order for me to achieve evidence, the cat itself has to be capable of appearing to me. Um, So if I'm going to judge that this cat is white, then when I go and I have an experience, what I experience is the cat. It's not you know, like a a representational movie projected by my brain. It's not some other thing. It is the cat about which I've judged. Um, Mm. So there, you know, phenomenology basically is a form of direct realism. Uh, The idea is that the objects of our perception and all intentional objects of consciousness whatsoever are the things themselves and not, you know, representations or ideas, you know, like in the philosophy of, of of the Enlightenment. We directly perceive things themselves and we accomplish evidence we re- we accomplish knowledge when the judgments that we form about these things you know are fulfilled in an experience of the things themselves so if i judge mm-hmm. that the cat is white then i achieve evidence when i see that cat about which i formed the judgment and it you know presents itself to me as white so uh, that's so i want to make sure yeah. i'm getting i'm getting this right so like so earlier you were like there's no there's not this distinction that kant would make between like the thing itself and then my like my perception of it and what you this seems like it's coming back to this point again right it's like when i see a cat well, i'm just experiencing the cat correct i'm not like it's not like mediated through like my concepts or like i'm not prevented from experiencing it because of like my concepts it's just i'm, I'm directly perceiving the cat so is that is that, is that right yeah, that's that's correct, okay. right? So the the intentional object. Now here, there's a there's a debate about how to interpret Husserl. 
Um, so Husserl obviously says that consciousness is, is intentional. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it has an object. Um, and Husserl distinguished between two aspects of the intentional structure of consciousness. On the one hand, there is what he called a noesis, which is the mode of intending. So for example, there are a lot of different intentional states, but they're not all the same. I can be afraid of one thing. I can love another. I can be curious about that. I can be doubtful about this. I can see this. I can hear that. Mm. These are all intentional states because all of these forms of consciousness have an object. But the mode of intending is not the same. It's not the same to fear something or to love it. It's not the same to see something or to hear it, uh, to think about something or to doubt it or whatever. So the mode of intending is different. Right. Now, the controversy arises when it comes to the interpretation of the intentional object. Some interpreters of Husserl say that the intentional object what it is that actually I see is not the real world thing. It's a kind of, you know, just like in Frege, there's a distinction between the sense and the referent of a, of a word or a proposition. These people interpret Husserl similarly. They say that there is a distinction between the intentional object and the intended object. Okay. The intentional object is this sort of Fregean middle thing. Um, and the intended object is the real thing in the world. Other interpreters of Husserl, such as Sokolowski, Dan Zahavi, and others, will say, no, the intentional object is the intended object. If I perceive a cat, then the thing that I perceive is the cat itself. It's not some representation of the cat, you know, and that arises somehow or other. Um, And I go with this latter interpretation. For me, the intentional object is the thing itself. It's not a representation of the thing that I intend or whatever. And that's, you know, that's, again, another aspect of the direct realism of phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Direct realism basically asserts that the intentional object of perception or of whatever other form of intending is the real thing. It's not a representation of the thing. It's not a, a bundle of sense ideas or anything like that. It is the real thing. Um, and that that's the way that I interpret Husserl, and that's the way that I interpret phenomenology also. Yeah, I find that more intuitive. And also, I really appreciate, I want to like stress how much I appreciate the way you've explained this. I remember having lunch with um, with a phenomenologist several years ago, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm kind of out of the loop here. Help explain this to me. And he's like, well, you start with experience. And I was like, good, good, good. And he's like, okay. And so we reflect on our experience. I was like, okay. And I was like, where do we go from there? And he's like, well, when we reflect on our experience, we just see that the world is a howling nothing in the darkness, uh, you know, screaming in the <laughs> void. And I was like, is that your experience or my experience? He's like, that's just experience. And I was just like, oh, okay. And then I realized I was like, I don't know where to go with this. So just, just let him go. Whereas like, I feel like I've been able to follow everything you've said and gone like, okay, yeah, I could buy into that. I could buy, well, I certainly buy into that. So, so yeah, so I really mm-hmm. like this. Yeah. Help me understand a little bit about the relationship between phenomenology and theology though. Like, cause it seems like there's a couple applications you could have here. Yes. Uh, if I can, just for a moment, I, mm-hmm. I would like to just one more, because I, I mentioned two commitments of phenomenology and there's a third oh, right. one, which yeah, is yeah. really the most important one. Um, so I, I don't want to miss this one. So there's the ontological commitment of phenomenology, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, appearance and being uh, consciousness is the, the arena for the self-disclosure of being. The second uh, commitment is that knowledge consists in judgment evidence, where my judgment about a thing is confirmed in the experience of that thing. And then there's the methodological commitment, which is really the way to do phenomenology. And this is called the phenomenological reduction. Uh, and the phenomenological reduction can really be understood as a means of attaining Uh, to judgment evidence. This is the way to achieve judgment evidence. And the phenomenological reduction basically consists in two steps. First, there is the step which Husserl called the epoche, which is a Greek word that the ancient skeptics used to use to refer to suspension of judgment. Uh, He doesn't mean exactly the same thing, but the epoche is a sort of a suspension. Uh, And really what the suspension consists in is the suspension or bracketing or parenthetization or whatever of your prior ideas about a thing. 
you set aside all your prior ideas about what this thing should be, including even, you know, metaphysical ideas like this is a a really existing object that is independent Mm -hmm. of my consciousness or whatever. You have to set all of that aside. You have to sort of clear the ground. Um, And then in the second part of the phenomenological reduction, once you've cleared the ground for the analysis of the object, you then proceed to describe as precisely as possible exactly the way this thing discloses itself in experience. So you set aside prior, you know, metaphysical, scientific, whatever kind of theories that you might have about what this thing is. And then you redefine the thing in your mind according to the way that you experience it. Mm-hmm. And this is a way for uh, this is a way to accomplish judgment evidence because every judgment that you make is being confirmed, you know, sort of in real time by the appearance of the thing. Right. So this is how you get to judgment evidence. Judgment evidence is when your judgment is confirmed by an experience of an object and the phenomenological reduction basically consists in an attempt to set aside all your prior judgments about a thing in order to form new judgments or on the basis of a description of the experience of that thing. Um, so really, this, that's the, the, the phenomenological method. And, you know, there's a writer, Jacques Tamignot, who, who says, basically, you cannot be a phenomenologist without practicing the reduction. So if there's one thing that's essential to phenomenology, it's precisely the, the phenomenological reduction and the commitment to limit limiting your descriptions of things on the basis of the way you experience them on the basis of the mm-hmm. way they actually disclose themselves and not prior theories about what must they, what what they must be not prior metaphysical categories that you have to use to interpret them or anything like that phenomenology basically is a way of like wiping the slate clean and proceeding on the basis of the the actual experience of the thing in question right okay and i can see why this is going to be really important for your dissertation is cuz you want to get rid of all your prejudgments and try to actually see the world uh, and just let the world inform your like your actual judgment. So that okay, so this makes sense to me. Okay, yeah. So now my my dissertation is called a constructive theological phenomenology of scripture. Um, I take the idea of constructive theology from Karkainen. Uh, that's basically his term used to refer to systematic theology. Maybe there's a distinction between constructive theology and uh, systematic theology, but in any case, that's the the term that I use. Now, really, the the title of my dissertation by itself should be pretty controversial to a lot of people because the relationship between phenomenology and theology is controversial. Uh, there are some who think that, you know, like Dominique Janicot said in the 1990s, phenomenology and theology make two. These are two things. They cannot be combined. These are two separate fields of inquiry and combining mm-hmm. them really just hurts both of them. Phenomenology becomes impure and theology becomes impure when you try to use the both of them. Oh, so that was his argument. He was he noticed that figures like Emmanuel Levinas, Jean-Luc Marion, Paul Ricoeur and others were making use of phenomenology to approach theological subject matters. And he said, no, 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 no. This is entirely wrong. Uh, this is contrary to the epoche, right? In the epoche, you are supposed to suspend all your prior theoretical commitments about what things are supposed to be. You're supposed to suspend even the idea that all these things that you're experiencing exist independently of you, ex- independently of your consciousness. You're supposed to suspend the real you know, metaphysical existence of these things. And he says, listen, if you suspend the real metaphysical existence of the world, then you suspend God. God is out of the question, right? God is this right. real metaphysical reality par excellence. So how are you going to do phenomenology and start talking about God? These are two separate things. You know, so he, he you know, he really railed into Levinas and Marion and, and Ricoeur and these other figures because they were using phenomenology to talk about theological subject matters. And he thought that that was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And then there's another guy. His name is uh, Nicolas de Catalera, I think his name is. He's, uh, uh, I think he's from the Netherlands. I don't know that I pronounced his name correctly. He also has an article in which he argues that, listen, the, the phenomenological attempt to identify religious phenomena or religious realities and experience has failed. 
these things that these phenomenologists are talking about as like religious realities, other people can experience those same things and not have any inclination to describe them in religious terms. You know, it seems more like what's really going on is you are taking this phenomenon or this thing and interpreting it theologically rather than phenomenologically. You know, you're just presenting it as if it were phenomenological. You're presenting it as if God appears or God is actually experienced when in fact other people, you know, don't have this experience at all. Mm -hmm. And so Nicholas uh, will say, there is no hope for a, you know, a religious phenomenology, right? The stuff that religion is concerned with, with those things don't appear. We do not experience those things. We believe in them. You know, like Hebrews says, faith is a conviction of things not seen. Okay. Right. So here you might find in Hebrews exactly an anti-phenomenological sentiment. Um, sure. The things that we believe in, we don't see, but phenomenology is concerned with what we see. So, mm-hmm. you know, you cannot uh, do a phenomenology of religious things, right? The religious things are invisible. They're in principle beyond the bounds of phenomenology. He says that phenomenologists would do better to simply investigate how a religious point of view informs your interpretation of the world, right? So you can say, okay, given that I'm a religious person, how do I interpret the world? You can do that. That's a phenomenological, you know, okay. a proper topic for phenomenological research. But you cannot phenomenologically investigate religious phenomena because they're they are invisible. They do not appear. They are not experienced in the way that phenomenology is concerned with. Um, so that's that's sort of one side. You know, Dominic Janico, Nicolas de Catalera, they say the things that religion talks about, God, you know, the soul, all these things, the afterlife, those things are not visible. They do not appear. We, 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 you know, we don't see them. And so therefore we cannot investigate them phenomenologically. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one side. On the other side, there are uh, some thinkers like Robert Sokolowski, whom I mentioned earlier. Uh, Richard Carney is another one, Joseph Rivera. And they basically use phenomenological language to clarify or to bring to light aspects of religious life. Robert Sokolowski calls this the theology of disclosure. He, so he's, he's, he's not suggesting that like actually you can phenomenologically discern God in experience. But what he is saying is that you can use phenomenological concepts in order to better explain what is going on in the religious life. For example, when we read scripture or, you know, when we go to church, the liturgy, you can interpret these aspects of religious life phenomenologically in order to uh, clarify, you know, how it is that people would believe in these things or how it is that people, you know, what is going on when we go to church and so on. Uh, that doesn't mean that God himself is made present. It doesn't mean that you're like discerning, mm-hmm. oh, this is where God is in our experience. Uh, but you make use of phenomenological concepts to explicate aspects of theology or religious life, I guess would be a way of putting it. Now, so those are two ways. Those are two approaches to the relationship between phenomenology and theology. On the on the more negative side, we have Dominic Janicot and Nicolas de Catalera who say basically like, well, phenomenology and theology are two different things. You cannot combine them. At the very least, or at the very most, what you can have is a kind of a phenomenological analysis of being a religious person. That's as best as you can do. Hmm. Then you have Joseph Rivera, Richard Carney, Robert Sokolowski, who make use of phenomenological language and phenomenological categories to explain parts of religious life and, and so on. My dissertation really is different from this. My dissertation seeks to make a theological proposal on the on a phenomenological foundation. Um, so for me, the phenomenological discoveries of my investigation serve as the foundation for my concrete theological proposals, you know, so that for me, basically, I would not say that phenomenology is a handmaiden for theology. That's kind of what Sokolowski and Rivera and these guys do, right? They they start with theology and then they just use phenomenology to like interpret it and to, to help it make sense. Mm-hmm. My 
approaches backwards. I start with phenomenology and then I adjust our theology, specifically of scripture and church and tradition, on the basis of the phenomenological analyses. Right. So what I'm doing, yeah. So what I'm doing in my dissertation in a sentence is I am providing a properly phenomenological analysis of the act of reading the Bible as scripture for the sake of a constructive theological proposal regarding the nature and interrelations of scripture, tradition, and church as sources and authorities for theology. That's a long sentence, but that's basically what I'm doing, right? So the, the theological part has to do with scripture and ecclesial tradition. How do they relate? What are they? How do they work? You know, basically the the basic question of theological method, right? How do scripture Mm -hmm. and ecclesial tradition work together? And in order to get an answer to that question, I am investigating phenomenologically the act of reading the Bible as scripture. Mm -hmm. Now, you might think, what is the connection between these two? My dissertation, I hope, shows that actually there is actually, you can actually move from the one to the other. Okay. So I want to make sure I'm like following some of the problems here. So one is like things like God, souls, afterlife. I can't experience those. So that's just off the table in terms of doing phenomenology. That's one view. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one kind of view. And then the other kind of like sort of like view that might be like cause problems would be like, well, there's certain things like I'm experiencing, but I'm describing my experiences with some, I guess, like prejudgments or some concepts already. And well, then I'm not really suspending my judgment, right? So I'm not mm-hmm. really following the method of phenomenology very well. Correct. And so you're going to be like, ah, I got to wait all, throughout all this mess. Like I'm going to give you like a, like the real story. Like is that kind of the idea? Yeah. So the the point that I make in my dissertation is that it's true. There are some things which are not liable to phenomenological investigation, right? Something that cannot be experienced obviously cannot be <laughs> investigated phenomenologically. Right. Yeah. Okay. At the same time, I would make this point. Theology is not only about unexperienceable things. Christian theology also talks about things that we experience all the time. For example, community. And in Mm -hmm. my case, the Bible. The Bible is a visible, real thing. Yeah. um, And reading the Bible as scripture is an experience that we can investigate phenomenologically. Right. Uh, So basically, my response to Jeannicot and to Nicolas de Catalera and to others is to say that they they assume to you know really they cons- they restrict the domain of theological inquiry too much. They think that theology is just about the you know immortal invisible God whom no one has ever seen. Right. Um, and I say no, it's not only that. Theology is also about scripture. You know, there is such a thing as a theology of scripture. Right. One of the biggest disputes among the you know the major branches of Christianity precisely has to do with scripture and tradition. That's what differ. That's what the point of difference is between Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox. And my suggestion in my dissertation is that listen, we can make progress in this debate about the relation between scripture and tradition if we attend with you know phenomenological care mm-hmm. to the actual act of reading the Bible as scripture. This is something that all Christians do. Everybody who is a Christian reads the Bible as scripture. Um, now, maybe they differ with respect to their theological interpretation of scripture. Maybe they differ with respect to how they understand the relation between scripture and tradition, but at the very least, they're all doing that. Yeah. So my working hypothesis in my dissertation is that if we attend phenomenologically to the act of reading the Bible as scripture, then actually we will have something to say about the way that scripture and tradition are related to each other. That's the that's the hypothesis from where I start, and then the the, the subsequent chapters of analysis are intended to to support this hypothesis. Okay. So, so I guess like at this point then, so it's definitely the case, like I, I know what it's like to experience reading scripture. And, and this mm-hmm. is something that you're like, you're saying like all Christians should be able to have this experience in common. So you've got some kind of grounds here for saying like, I got some phenomenology I can do. So what exactly mm-hmm. is like a phenomenology of scripture? So a phenomenology of scripture, um, in my opinion, addresses three principal questions. The first question is, what does it mean to read the Bible as scripture? 
uh, as opposed to reading it as literature or as history or whatever, you know, what is it? The second question, what is the relationship between scripture and ecclesial tradition? How are scripture and the tradition of the church related to each other? And then the third question is, is there an experience of the word of God in the human words of the Bible? And this question is really raised by my answer to the first question. So the first question is this, what does it mean to read the Bible as scripture? Well, I say that reading the Bible as scripture means reading it on the faith assumption that it contains and communicates the word of God. Uh, like Paul says in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. The reason why we call the Bible scripture and not Aristotle or anybody else is because we think that in addition to Paul, James, John, Mark, Luke, etc., this text also communicates the word of God, not just the word of various human beings, which can be more or less convincing or possible, but also the word of God. That's why we call it scripture. Mm -hmm. So we read the Bible as scripture, and that means that we read it on the faith assumption that it contains and communicates the word of God. In some way, the Bible also contains a communication from God and not merely from its various human authors. But then that raises the question, okay, we read the Bible on the basis of this assumption. Is that assumption ever confirmed in an experience? That's where the third question comes from. Hmm, okay. Is there an experience of the word of God in the human words of the biblical text? That's the, that's the, the relation between the, the first and the third question of a phenomenology of scripture. Right. Okay. And again, so now you found something like, you're like, aha, I've got something I can phenomenologically describe. Yes. And this is what is interesting to me. Although, you know, phenomenology of religion is not a new thing. People have been doing this for a long time and it's really blowing up, but nobody has written a proper phenomenology of scripture. Okay. My dissertation really is the first, right? If, if you accept my definition of what a phenomenology of scripture consists in, my dissertation is the first thing that has been written on this question. Um, some phenomenologists have addressed these questions sort of tangentially or indirectly, but my dissertation really is the first systematic, you know, properly phenomenological treatment of scripture. A lot of times, you know, there was a book that came out in 2017, edited by a guy named Adam Wells. It was called Phenomenologies of Scripture. Uh, and so obviously I read the, you know, I, I bought the book and I was reading it in, in uh, research for my dissertation, but I read it and I was really disappointed because what it really, what amounted to were a bunch of essays that either were like phenomenological interpretations of passages of scripture or else, you know, maybe like, you know, articles identifying what you might call proto-phenomenological insights in scripture. Okay. Right. So like maybe there's this phenomenological idea that is expressed sort of dimly in scripture or let's take this passage of scripture and interpret it phenomenologically. What I'm doing is different. I'm, I, you know, just like you might have a phenomenology of love, right? What is love? What is it to experience love? I'm doing a proper phenomenology of scripture. What is it to read the Bible as scripture? That's the, the central question of my, of my dissertation. And I'm the first person, as far as I know, uh, who is doing anything like this. So hopefully it will be the beginning of, uh, you know, a new uh, research in initiative into this question. Nice. Okay. So you're doing some cutting edge stuff. So, well, then let's talk about some of that cutting edge stuff. Like what were some of your principal findings here? Like what did you kind of come up with? So the, with respect to the first question, um, this one was really the easiest to answer. This was sort of the insight that I went into the dissertation, uh, you know, uh, starting with. Reading the Bible as scripture means reading it from the faith assumption that it contains and communicates the word of God. Reading the Bible as scripture is not, you know, using the grammatical historical method to determine what Paul meant to say. You can do that even if you're not a Christian. And you can even get the right answer and not be a Christian. Reading the Bible as scripture is not reading the Bible as a work of literary art. 
it is not a matter of analyzing, you know, chiasms or uh, the meter of the Psalms or anything like that. Reading the Bible as scripture is a different way of approaching the biblical text. It's, it means reading it in the hopes of coming across a communication from God. It, it means reading it on the assumption that God will communicate to you through this text. That's what it means to read it as scripture. And as I mentioned in my dissertation, this is one thing that all Christians have in common, irrespective of their theological commitments. So whether you are, you know, an Orthodox or a Protestant or a Catholic, whether you're a magisterial Protestant or a, or, or a radical reformer, you know, whether you're the biggest heretic in the world or, you know, one of these like hyper-Orthodox traditional types, what you are going to do is to read the Bible as scripture, to read it as though it contains and communicates the word of God. And so my, you know, really my, my dissertation has also this ecumenical aspect to it. Uh, the first chapter of my dissertation basically notes, listen, the Christian churches are in division from one another. They don't get along. They are not in communion with one another. This is contrary to the to the interests of Christ. This is contrary to what Christ prayed for. This is a problem. And if you have, you know, if you consider yourself to have some sort of a theological calling, this is a problem that you should address out of fidelity to Christ. So my phenomenology of scripture is a way of trying to find a new basis for Christian unity centered around this act that we all do, that we all partake in, that we all participate in. Mm -hmm. All of us read the Bible as scripture. Whatever our more concrete, precise theological commitments might be, we all read the Bible as scripture. Um, and the the sort of the intuition that was motivating my dissertation was that this act can also help to clarify things for us and uh, can serve as the basis for constructing a new unity among Christian Christians, among uh, the Christian churches. So that's the, that's the first thing uh, that the phenomenology of scripture discovers is that reading the Bible as scripture means reading it on the faith assumption that it contains and communicates the word of God. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the second finding of the phenomenology of scripture is that scripture and ecclesial tradition are related to each other by means of what I call a, a relation of reciprocal priority or mutual priority. Okay. What I mean by that is that scripture is prior to tradition of the church in one sense, but the tradition of the church is prior to scripture in another sense. Okay. So a lot of times in the debates between Catholics and Protestants or Orthodox and Protestants, this will be the question. What comes first? Right. Scripture or tradition? And in some of my published works, before I did my dissertation, I used to argue on phenomenological grounds that tradition comes first. Uh, but then by the time I got around to doing my dissertation, I realized that this was not totally true. There's a sense in which scripture comes first, and there's a sense in which tradition comes first. Now, what are these senses exactly? Well, the first thing that I say is that the tradition of the church is, we can say, formally or phenomenologically prior to scripture in two senses. In the first place, the scripture itself is the product of an ecclesial tradition, which is encountered by reading it. Um, you know, one of the chapters of my dissertation basically describes how when we read scripture, obviously we want to encounter a word from God, but really what we're encountering is the church in diverse ways. On the one hand, you know, that Christ, you know, had a group of followers. Um, he had a basically a rabbinical school that he developed. He taught them his teachings. And then when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he sent them off into the world to propagate his teachings. Now, that is exactly a tradition, you know, just like in ancient Greek mm -hmm. philosophy, you have Platonism or Epicureanism or Stoicism and so on. You also have a school of Christ, so to speak, um, in which all the members of this school belong to a shared tradition, namely the one originating in Jesus of Nazareth. And then they go from place to place and they teach other people and they try to expand, you know, the borders of this tradition and to include as many people in it as possible. Mm -hmm. And then at some point in their lives, they thought it was worthwhile for them to write letters or to write biographies of Jesus, if you want to call them that. And these texts are themselves the products of this tradition. 
you know, when Paul sits down to write the letters to the Romans, he is speaking on the basis of his authority as an apostle of Christ. His concern is to communicate the teaching of Christ and the, its significance, especially of his death, to these people in Rome. Um, so the scriptures themselves are basically like products of this tradition. They're products of this living tradition that tries to multiply itself and tries to expand itself and to exert its influence on others in order to bring them into it. So when you read Paul, you know, you are coming across this Christian tradition, this early Christian tradition. Uh, just like when you were read Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, you are coming into contact with the Stoic tradition to some extent. Mm -hmm. Only the Christian tradition is a little more well organized because, as, I mean, as far as I know, there is a Stoic school of philosophy, but I don't know that they had as the, the same sort of hierarchical structure that the early Christians did. So that's that's a sort of an obvious sense. But there is also a more subtle sense in which we encounter the tradition of the church when we read the Bible as scripture. And that is because these texts that we are reading, they're appearing in a single volume, but they weren't written together. Right. Paul didn't write all of his letters at the same time. He wasn't writing at the same time as Mark or Luke or John, James, all these other figures. They didn't write at the same time and they didn't themselves compile these works. You know, the fact that I have a single book in my hand with a lot of different authors put together means that I'm not only encountering those individual authors and their works, but I'm also encountering in a, in a subtler way the group of people who thought that all these texts are so important that we should bind them together and distribute them as a, as a unity, mm -hmm. right? So just, for example, like a, the editor of a book has his name. You know, there is no editor of a book, uh, you know, on the Bible. <laughs> the sure. Bible does not say arranged and compiled by such and such a person, you know? But it is nevertheless an arrangement and a compilation. And the figure that I encounter when I read the Bible or when I see the Bible is what I call the church. That community of people, you know, the inheritors of the tradition of the apostles who thought that these texts were so important that they deserve to be read. They deserve to be bound within a single volume and read, furthermore, coherently with one another. I think that's a part of the implication. The reason why these texts are compiled into a single volume for Christians is because they are not to be read separately, as if Paul is doing his own thing. James is doing his own thing. Peter is doing his own thing, right? So when you, in, in the academic world, for example, you can have an anthology or a, a collection of, of essays, and even the authors might argue against them, each other, right? Right. Or you might have one argue who, you might have one author who is just doing his own thing. And, you know, the thematic connection between his articles and the others is rather tangential or, or loose. The, the idea in the compilation of the, of the New Testament text together with the Old Testament text as scripture, you know, you label them scripture. The idea is that all these texts have to be read together. What Paul says has to be read in connection with what John says, what Mark says has to be read in connection with what Isaiah says, and so on and so forth. The idea when we read the Bible as scripture is that we are not only encountering individual voices, we are encountering, encountering a tradition, a unified group of people that agree on at least the essential things, if not on quite everything. And furthermore, we are also encountering their inheritors who took the time to save these texts, to compile them, to preserve them, you know, for posterity and to publish them in a single volume, which we call the Holy Bible. So uh, the scripture is the product of a tradition really in two senses. First, the individual texts are themselves uh, the product of a tradition. And second, the volume, the Bible as a mm -hmm. volume, as a, as a collected volume is itself the product of a tradition. And when we read the Bible, uh, when we read the Bible as scripture, we are encountering this tradition in this, you know, pluriform way, in, in, in these multiple ways. Right. So that's that's one sense. So if you know that's uh, that's a way in which tradition is prior to scripture. Tradition really produces scripture. You know that's the the common point that you'll hear Catholics and Orthodox make against Protestants. You cannot have scripture without tradition because the tradition produces scripture in this multiple sense. Now, not only that, 
The ecclesial tradition makes it possible to read the text in the first place, because what it does is it provides a framework with, within which to understand what the Bible is saying. You know, for example, nobody is born knowing how to read. Sure. In order for us to know how to read, we have to be taught a language, you know, that also has a textual basis. And so I have to be taught how to read by being what you might say is incorporated into a certain tradition, just like you have, you know, American English and people who are born in in America are taught American English as children. So also when we become Christians, I say, we are being brought into a tradition to a certain extent. We are being brought into a certain language, into a certain way of viewing the world. Um, And without that kind of education, you really cannot understand what the Bible says. Um, I think a lot of times in the debates between Catholics and Protestants, you know, the Protestants will bring up this notion of the the clarity of Scripture Mm -hmm. and, you know, the the claritas scripturae and and so on. And they'll make the point that Scripture is perspicuous. The Holy Spirit helps the truly faithful to read the scripture and to understand the essential ideas. But, you know, there's also the response that Augustine makes. Listen, anybody who was taught to read, anybody who reads the scripture and thinks, oh, I don't need, you know, help from teachers. I can read the scripture by myself. I can understand everything. At the very least, you were taught to read by someone else, right? You didn't teach yourself to read. (laughs) And when somebody teaches you how to read, what they're doing is teaching you how to interpret symbols on a page to correspond this symbol with this idea. And you're always going to read in accordance with the education that you received. Now, imagine that somebody taught you you know, imagine you grow up in a family where, you know, your parents regularly misused a certain word. They used it as referring to one thing, but actually it referred to something else. And then you read a mm-hmm. book and that word is in the book. And you think that it means one thing when in fact the author intended something else, right? You can only read on the basis of the training you've received. That's that's the way it is with, you know, if you're taught how to play the piano, you can only play the piano as well as the person who taught you, uh, or at least as well as your teaching allows, assuming that nobody else comes along and corrects your mistakes or whatever, or you don't run into mm-hmm. somebody who does things differently. You know, Im- imagine people who go to school and study philosophy at the university. If you study philosophy at a university where everybody does Bayesian theory and uh, analytic epistemology and so on, you're going to read up a medieval text or a phenomenological text, and you're not going to be able to understand what's going on because right. it's a different language. It's a different tradition. Yeah. The same thing is true with scripture. In order for us to understand scripture, we have to inhabit to some extent the tradition that, you know, from which, uh, within which it arose. If somebody picked up the Bible and had no idea what Israel meant, no notion of God, no notion of righteousness or sin, had no idea who Jesus was, no idea of election, righteousness, justification, sanctification, without an understanding of these concepts, which we are not born knowing, which we have to be taught about by other people, without an understanding of those concepts, you will not understand scripture. And I, you know, I've asked my my students at at school this, you know, at at uh, this question. I asked them, "How many of you read the Bible and really have a hard time understanding things?" That was me, you know. And a lot mm-hmm. of them say, no, "Yeah, sure. I just don't, I don't understand what these things mean." Until somebody sat down and taught me basic principles of Pauline theology, for example, I had no idea what the Epistle to the Romans was talking about. Yeah. Now and again, you come across the sentence that is written in apparently plain English, you know, Jesus, you know, Christ did not please himself, love one another, etc. God loves us while we're still sinners. Now and again, you come across these sentences where there is actually a measure of overlap between your concepts and knowledge that you have and the things that Paul is talking about. And then you can understand. But if you are reading a sentence like, you know, uh, he is the uh, the hilasterion, right? He's the the uh, the sacrifice of a, of propitiation for our sins. If you don't know what propitiation means, if you don't understand the purpose of sacrifice, if you don't know what a sin is, that sentence means nothing to you. Right? Yeah, you can be lost. Yeah, you're not born knowing these things. People have to tell you. But even then, you will read that in light of the education you received. So, in order for us to understand Scripture, 
we have to be educated by the church. We have to learn how to speak the church's language, you know, and that's why there's a distinction, for example, between, you know, early Orthodox or proto-Orthodox readings of scripture. And then the, the really wild stuff that you would find in the Gnostic circles, you know, they are coming from a different tradition. They are interpreting these words of the Bible in light of some entirely different tradition. And that's why, you know, they'll pick up the gospel of John and they'll find this discourse about archons and hypostases and all these sorts of weird stuff to play Roma, stuff that you do not find at all in Paul or in Irenaeus or Tertullian or the other stuff. They have different traditions. And the way that you read the text is influenced by the tradition that you're coming from. That's because what it means to read is to interpret a symbol on a page in light of a habit that you've received from other people. Mm -hmm. When I read, you know, when I read the word dog in English, I understand that symbol to mean something in light of what other people have told me and in light of how other people have taught me to read it. So if we're going to understand this or if we're going to understand scripture, which is itself the product of a tradition, we have to approach scripture from at least the partial inhabitation of that tradition. We have to be in that tradition to some extent in order to understand what it's talking about. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a member of the visible church. You can just grow up in a Christian culture and hear people talking about Christian stuff, and you could pick up the Bible and probably understand much of it. But you are still, you know, living in a sort of a Christian tradition, you know, even mm -hmm. though you're not religious yourself, you are not yourself a, a, a believing Christian, because you at the very least have a familiarity with the relevant concepts and you, at the very least, think to some extent like Christians do. Right. Uh, that's why, for example, I don't know if you ever saw that movie Silence or you read the the, the book by Shusaku Endo. I'm familiar with it, but I've not. No, I've not seen it or read it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's about the Jesuit mission to Japan in the 1600s. I think, if I'm not mistaken. You know, there's a there's a scene in the book where an apostatized priest, a, a, a priest who had given up on Christianity, speaks to another missionary who had come to Japan after the persecutions had started, and he says, "These people have no notion of God." You know, we would talk about the son of God and they would think we were talking about the sun in the sky. Uh, he says Christianity can't grow here, right? It's it's a swamp. You know, the, the seeds of Christianity cannot grow in Japan. Basically, his point was this, this these people just do not have the appropriate tradition in order to understand what Christianity is about. They are in an entirely different worldview, you know, to use that language. They're an entirely different system of thinking. And the things that Christianity talks about just make no sense to them. They cannot understand them. So, you know, you and I might read right, might read the Bible and it comes really easy for us. But somebody from Japan who does not even know what God is and has no notion of God mm -hmm. will not read the Bible easily. They will not understand what, you know, what it's talking about. So this is really the, the second sense in which tradition is prior to scripture. It's phenomenologically prior in the sense that without the appropriate education, scripture does not make sense to you. You cannot understand what it's saying. So then this makes sense to me. So I, so I can follow, like, like I can say like, right, I get it. Like in these senses, tradition is definitely comes first. Well, like what sense then does like uh, scripture come first though? I say that scripture is methodologically or materially or theologically prior to tradition uh, because my goal in reading is not just to take a certain tradition and, you know, to milk it for all it's worth and to apply it to the text and to see where it takes me. My goal in reading the Bible of scripture is precisely to understand what it says. I want God to speak to me, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that it's true that I have to read the scripture from the point of view of the education that I've received. But my goal right. is not simply to take that education and to force it onto the text. My goal is to understand what the text says. And, you know, the, the phenomenologist slash expert in hermeneutics, uh, Gadamer, says that there is an experience that we call being pulled up short by the text. What does that mean? That means that you read the text, but you cannot make sense of it. And you realize that, okay, the, the assumptions that I'm bringing to the text, the way that I'm interpreting this text is not working. I have to make some kind of adjustments to my prior conception of things. I have to make mm -hmm. some kind of adjustments to my prior assumptions so that this text can begin to make sense to me. It must be that I'm misinterpreting something somewhere, right? So it's true that 
every act of reading presupposes a tradition. But my goal is not just to take that tradition and to apply it and to see what happens. My goal is to understand what the text says. So that means that I must be willing to make adjustments to my tradition in order to better appreciate what the text is saying. And this is this is really a sense in which scripture is prior to tradition, because although tradition makes it possible for me to read scripture in the first place, the tradition is not infallible. The tradition may need to be adjusted. I may need to make changes to my tradition in order to better make sense of the text in front of me. And that means that I am not, you know, life and death, tooth and nail committed to this tradition. I, you know, my goal is not simply just to take this tradition and to apply it to the text and to force it. My goal is to understand what the text means. And it could be that the text will require me to, you know, require me to make adjustments to my tradition. And I give a, I give an analogy in my dissertation, and I think it's quite helpful. And, you know, I, I basically say, okay, we can think about this by way of analogy with the perception of a physical object. All right, say that you're in a coffee shop, okay, and in the coffee shop is a person, uh, and you want to know if that person is someone that you know, right? Mm-hmm. So you see a body over there, and you say, oh, is that Oliver Crisp? Let's see. No, let's let's say JT Turner because I, I like to mm-hmm. give shout outs to JT when I'm there. We go. There we go. So let's say I'm in a in a coffee shop somewhere in Pasadena, and I have the impression, oh, that looks like it could be JT. Is it him? Well, obviously, every time we perceive a physical object, we're perceiving it from somewhere, right? There's no such thing as a view from nowhere. I have to see it from mm-hmm. some angle, from some point of view. And if we think very carefully, the point of view that you adopt both make certain things visible and certain things invisible. You know, my point of view from where I am, I can see somebody who from, you know, from behind looks like JT, a bald head, you know, sort of broad shoulders, not very tall, kind of well-built, right? So I think, oh, that could be JT. Is it him? But it, really what I want to know if I look at him directly, you know, from the from the front and see if it is him, because maybe it's just somebody who looks like him from behind. Right. It might be his twin brother, Roger. So Right. It could be his twin brother, Roger. Right. Yeah. Um, so the perspective that I have makes certain things visible to me. I can see the back of this guy's head. I can see his shoulders. I can see his arms and so on, but I can't see the front of him. So that means that certain th- this perspective makes certain things visible and it hides other things. Now, I'm not stuck there. I can go somewhere else, right? And then that oh, right, new perspective, yeah. right? And that new perspective will hide other things from me. Like I'm not going to be able to see the back of him anymore, but it will also unveil things to me. It will show me the front of him. So suppose I go around, you know, now this new perspective establishes for me a new you know, range of visibility, so to speak. It hides certain things, but it makes certain things visible. And I'm hoping that the thing that I really care about will be visible from that point of view. Um, so, you know, if I go from behind him to in front of him, I see, oh, it is JP, you know, and then I make a Seinfeld joke or something, and then we have coffee together, <laughs> right? Right. So what I'm suggesting is that scripture and tradition are like that. Tradition is like the point of view from which you are approaching the text, right? Every point of view makes certain things visible, but it also makes certain things invisible. And it could be that what you are looking for is not visible from that point of view. So you have to change the point of view. So also, every tradition provides you with an education necessary to read the Bible. It gives you these concepts that are going to be necessary for you to understand what the Bible is saying. But it could be that the tradition that you inhabit now does not help you make complete sense of the Bible, Mm -hmm. in which case you will need to go elsewhere, right? You'll need to make an adjustment to the tradition, just like I have to walk from behind, you know, JT to in front of him in order to see his face. You will have to make adjustments to your tradition so that you can better, you know, unveil something in scripture so that you can better understand what it is that you're looking for. So that's that's how tradition and scripture relate to each other. Tradition is prior in a certain sense because, well, the scripture is itself a product of the tradition. And furthermore, it is by tradition that we receive the education necessary to be able to read in the first place, uh, namely to read the Bible in the first place. But on the other hand, scripture is prior because my goal is to understand what scripture is saying, not just to take this tradition and to stick to it, you know, life and death. Right. I want to understand what scripture is saying. And it could be that my tradition that I am currently inhabiting hides that from me. 
you know, it's like standing behind a wall, right? So I need to move in order to see better. So that means I may have to make adjustments to my tradition. I may have to give up certain theoretical commitments or certain, you know, doctrines or theologumen or whatever in order to better make sense of the text that's in front of me. Uh, so just like I might move around and find the optimal physical, you know, position in order to see something. So also I might need to make adjustments to my tradition as I read the Bible in order to make the best sense of the text that's in front of me. So that's how I say that scripture and tradition are related to each other. Scripture is prior in one sense, tradition is prior in another. Um, Mm -hmm. And this I think is really important because this is a nuance that you don't get a lot of times in the debates about Catholics and Protestants. Certainly not, no. Because I can see this right away, yeah. Because like a lot of times, it really is one or the other. And you're pointing out, well, there's a sense in which it's it's both. And and the senses that you've laid out, they seem really obvious to me as soon as you lay them out. So yeah, I, I can see why this should change the conversation. Well, that, that I, it's good that it seems obvious to you because the the goal of <laughs> you know JT once said that phenomenology is like the Seinfeld of philosophy. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know. Ideally, if you are doing phenomenology correctly, everything you, sh- you say should be obvious, right? Because it should mm-hmm. just be clearly something that you can experience, right? It's, yeah. there's, there's no hiddenness. There's no, there's no mystery. It's just what experience is, you know, just the clear data of experience. And I think that that's right. A lot of times Catholics will argue against Protestants. Listen, you don't even have scripture unless you have a tradition and a church. That's true. Formally speaking and phenomenologically speaking, that's true. You do not have scripture without a tradition and a church. You know, Protestants will say, listen, who cares about the tradition if it doesn't say what scripture says? Scripture is obviously first. That is also true, right? The, so they are arguing that one or the other is prior, but you have to distinguish between the formal or phenomenological priority, which belongs to tradition, and then the material or theological priority, which belongs to scripture. And really, mm-hmm. you, you do not have a complete view of things unless you have both of these things. You have to understand the distinct modes of priority uh, that obtain in the relation between scripture and tradition. The first two findings of the phenomenology of scripture, reading the Bible as scripture means reading it on the basis of the faith assumption that scripture, uh, that the Bible contains and communicates the word of God. The second finding of the phenomenology of scripture is that scripture and tradition uh, exist in a relation of reciprocal priority. Scripture is prior in one sense, tradition in another. The final finding I claim in my article that the word of God is encountered in the words, the human words of the biblical text in an experience that I call the phenomenon of the third voice. Mm-hmm. Now, what does this mean? Okay. This phenomenon takes place when in the course of reading the Bible as scripture, a meaning or a sense uh, suggests itself spontaneously in the consciousness of the reader, which cannot be identified with the probable intended meaning of the human writer, nor can it be identified with the, you know, what that person might come up with according to their ordinary habits of interpretation. It's, it's a sort of a third thing. It's, it doesn't come from the voice of the reader. It doesn't come from the voice of the, of the human author. It comes from this third voice that makes use of the words of the human author to communicate something different and something that could not have been predicted, you know, hermeneutically. Now, this is sort of abstract, but I think this is actually an experience that a lot of people have had, um, and it's it's really theologically significant. So I'll give an example. Dietrich mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer comes to America in 1939. You know, things things are getting very bad in Germany. He doesn't really feel good about it, but he comes to America, and every day he's in the habit of reading the Bible. One day he reads from the Bible a text from Isaiah that says, the one who believes will not flee. And he hears those words and he hears them as condemning his escape from Germany, right? He knows Isaiah is talking about other people in some other context. He doesn't have anything to do with, with uh, 
Bonhoeffer situation. But at the same time, he can't help but to hear those words as somehow condemning what he's done. And then I think it's the next day, uh, he reads a passage from Paul's second letter to Timothy, where he says, uh, do thy due diligence to come before the winter. Now, these words, once he hears them, they strike him with power, right? Come before the winter. He hears these words as addressing him and commanding his return to, uh, to Germany. Now, he writes, in his, he writes in his journal that he knows that there's something hermeneutically off about this, all right? There, this is not his practice of reading scripture. He is not in the habit of just opening up the Bible and you know, choosing the first sentence that he comes across and taking it as speaking to him. He doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. He knows the proper methods of interpretation. He knows the critical method and all that. But at the same time, without his wanting to and without it being the sort of thing that he was normally disposed to do, he reads this passage and he hears these words, come before the winter, and he can't help but to think that God is telling him to go back. So this is an illustration of what I call the phenomenon of the third voice, because what mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer hears, you know, the words that he hears, address him. But Paul is not talking about him. Paul could not be talking about him. That's not the right. meaning that Paul is communicating. And neither is it what Bonhoeffer would normally have come up with. Bonhoeffer doesn't interpret the Bible this way. So his voice, you know, his voice as, a, as the interpreter is excluded. The voice of Paul is excluded. There's this third voice that makes itself heard in Bonhoeffer's Mm -hmm. consciousness, making use of the words of Paul to tell Bonhoeffer to do something. Um, And so I say that, phenomenologically speaking, this is what it would mean to have an experience of the word of God and the words of scripture. Because only in this way is there a third voice that has been distinguished from all the human voices, right? Here is, it's not just a matter of like reading what Paul says and believing that it comes from God. Here, I actually hear some third voice. I'm encountering a third voice which is distinct from me and distinct from Paul or, or Isaiah or whoever it might be. Um, and in my dissertation, I actually suggest that something like this is going on in the New Testament when it interprets the Old Testament typologically with reference to Christ. Um, so the, the example that I give is from John 2. Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. His disciples see what's happening. And then the text says that they remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So just think about that. They are, here they are watching Jesus do this very strange thing um, of cleansing the temple and then imminently in their consciousness, right? Other people are not thinking about this. Nobody said this out loud. They just remembered, right. zeal for your house will consume me. Now, if you read Psalm whatever, you know, 100, whatever it is that the text appears in, it's not about Jesus. You know, this is the point that the critical scholars always make against the New Testament interpretation of the Old. They say, yeah. oh, they were misinterpreting. They were taking passages. They were, you know, taking out sentences from the Bible and, and, and forcing them to be about Jesus when in fact they're not. I'm saying, no, that's entirely wrong. They were not doing anything. They were following Jesus around from place to place. And without their wanting to, these passages from the Old Testament suggested themselves to them as somehow referring to, you know, to what was going on with Jesus beyond hmm. the possible intentions of the human authors and beyond also what they would have expected as interpreters, right? So I'm my suggestion is that the old, the the New Testament, you know, typological interpretation of the old is actually not an abuse of the text. It's the phenomenon of the third voice. The same thing that happened to Bonhoeffer was happening to the apostles and to the, to, to the followers of Jesus without them wanting to, without them looking for it, various passages in the old text in the old Testament suggested themselves in their mind as they were seeing things happen, happening to Christ. Mm -hmm. And this was a sense in which, you know, they were encountering the word of God in Jesus, right? The word of God was, God was using the words of the Old Testament to say something about Christ in a manner that went beyond the possible intentions or scopes of the Old Testament authors, and also which went contrary to the interpretive, uh, you know, expectations of the disciples themselves. Okay, so I need to think about this one more because the case, like the Bonhoeffer case, 
I feel like I've had that experience. So I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. I get that. I've had that experience too. Yeah. And so then applying it to the apostles, I'm like, ooh, okay. I need to think about that one some more. So that's, that's, that's provocative. That's interesting. So, so yeah. John Goldingay actually talks about an experience like this. So I don't know. Was, oh. Were you there um, at the LATC, the Doctrine of the Word of God or whichever, encountering the words? No, I've, I've only been at the Trinity and the, uh, and the theological anthropology ones. I, so I, yeah. Yeah, I missed the, the Doctrine of Scripture one. So he has a chapter in the book for that LATC conference on the Scripture one. And he mm-hmm. in, recounts exactly an experience like this, like Bonhoeffer had. And, you know, Augustine has an experience like this with the right. Tole Lege. Uh, that, that, that mind came to mind instantly yeah. Yeah, when you were talking about Anthony this. Anthony had an experience like this, go and sell all that you have. And he, you know, he became the first monk. So there are experiences like this throughout the whole history of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, my dissertation really, and this, this happened to me, interestingly enough, as I was doing research, I had exactly an experience like that, which, you know, I heard a word, I did not listen to it. If I had listened to it, I would have saved myself a lot of headache, but I didn't listen to it. And then <laughs> I learned, I learned the hard way that I should have just obeyed the word. Um, but I didn't listen to it. But I, you know, here I was like experiencing in my own life, the very things that I was writing about. Um, so, you know, th- this is an experience that a lot of people have had. Um, and this is, you know, something that I bring up in my dissertation. It's, it's a way, it's a phenomenologically grounded way of speaking about an experience with the word of God. And I also think that it's theologically significant because it helps us to understand how the old and the new testaments are connected without it being a matter of like textual abuse or, you know, interpretive, you know, right. uh, shenanigans or anything like that. So let's get into the, to one final question here. So now you've laid out this kind of account, like this is what you're up to. What are some of the consequences of the phenomenology of scripture for like Christian theology? So one of the things that I think it does is that it it helps to provide, like we were saying, a greater greater nuance in understanding the relation between scripture and tradition. Both scripture and tradition are prior in a certain sense, uh, but the sense is different. Um, so I think that this allows us to have a little more nuance in the conversations between uh, Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox on you know in relation to this question. I think that the the phenomenology of scripture helps us to be a little more nuanced and a little more precise in the way that we talk about the relation between scripture and tradition. As I was just saying, I think it also provides a way for understanding how the Old and the New Testament are a unity. You know, this is one of the major problems because there are a lot of ways that critical scholars read the New Testament and it's just like this disparate collection of, you know, texts arising from competing ecclesial communities and then like some later community like imposed the unity on them when in fact there is no unity. And then there's the question of like the, you know, the New Testament authors were basically abusing the Old Testament text in order to support their ecclesial purposes or whatever. I think all of that is too skeptical. I think that the phenomenon of the third voice actually provides a way of securing the unity of the Testaments. The New Testament, we can say, is a testimony to the experience of the third voice that the apostles and disciples had. Uh, basically, what the what the New Testament is doing is saying, listen, we were following Christ around all this time, and we saw how God God's word was you know speaking to us as these things were happening through the words of the Old Testament, and we are like sharing these things with you so that you can also have the same experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's this wonderful passage in Origen where he says that anybody who reads the texts of the Old Testament can't help but to feel a trace of their divine inspiration. Uh, basically, what's happening is you read the Old Testament text, and if you're a Christian, you, you some passages you just can't help but to think about Christ. You know, mm-hmm. Isaiah 53, for example, is a clear example. Oh, he sure. was bruised for yeah. our iniquities. And, you know, sometimes you read the Old Testament and you literally cannot help but to think about Christ. Now, if you lived before Christ, that would not be the case, right? Uh, because the text, the texts are not about him. Isaiah fifty three is about the people of Israel, right? That's a that's a perfectly fine interpretation. So much of the Old Testament is not about Christ at all, according to the intentions of the human authors. But it's precisely because God made use of these texts 
and you know spoke in the minds of his uh, in the minds of Christ's apostles by using these texts in a way that went beyond the possible intention of the human authors. It's precisely for that reason now that when you go back, you can't help but to see Christ there, right? Because the these words so clearly have a reference to what happened in Christ, even though that reference was not possible for the human authors. So this this helps, I think. Uh, to, this helps us to see how the Old and the New Testament are actually connected to each other. The the point of connection is the phenomenon of the third voice, so I say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, I think that this phenomenology of Scripture is helpful because I think it undermines the grounds for a sectarian attitude towards scriptural readers with different convictions or opinions than your own. Right, the fact that all of your all that you understand from Scripture is a product of the education that you've received and the tradition from which you begin. You are not just picking up the Bible and reading what it says, right? You have right. all this baggage that you're bringing to the text, um, and that is informing the way that you read it. Um, and so, of course, your interpretation is only as good as that prior baggage. You know, this I think re- recognizing this point helps me not to be sectarian. It helps me not to think everybody else is wrong. I am right. I have the Holy Spirit. You are all, you know, the children of the devil. Like Mm -hmm. that sort of attitude is very common. Um, Even if people are not explicitly like that all the time, if you push them on certain questions, they will get to that point. I think that the phenomenology of scripture helps us to be a little more honest with ourselves, right? We do not have infallible access to the perfect meaning of scripture right from the start. We have to start from somewhere and we have to build. So I think that the phenomenology of scripture actually motivates people from different traditions to collaborate with another, right? I see things from here. You see things from there. Let's see if we can't put these things together and get a more complete picture of, of what it is that we're looking at. That's kind of the attitude that I want to inspire uh, with my dissertation. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for explaining all this stuff today. I think you did a really good job at laying out something that normally would be like that. That's crazy stuff. I think you laid it out really clearly in a way that I'm like, that makes a lot of obvious sense here. And I think you've laid out some really interesting research questions too. Uh, that I'm certainly going to be thinking about some more. So I see. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Today. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on time, God, creation, and so much more.